to begin a study in the epistles of Paul. And we're going to start with the book of Galatians. And the reason why we're starting with Galatians is because we did Romans uh, just before Revelation. And Bobby just did First and Second Corinthians. And uh, after that comes Galatians. And so that's our, our reason. But for tonight, what we're going to do is somewhat of an introduction to this section of Scripture. So it's kind of a precursor to the introduction to Galatians. So, um, you know, kind of a, a, a look at why we're doing this. And I think that's a, an important thing sometimes to, to do, to just sit back. I mean, we come here, we, we enjoy the worship time, we sit down, we, we do Bible study, but sometimes it just asks the question of, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? What's the reason? You know, uh, what is it all about? And so kind of tonight is sort of just kind of a, a booster, if you would, for Bible study as to why, why are we doing this? Why are we going to get into this section of Scripture? If you study a gospel, it's almost like, yeah, we understand. We're looking at Jesus. When you look at Revelation, you understand. You say, yeah, the apocalypse, the second coming, the end times. The, we understand why. But sometimes you're like, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, why? You know, what's, what's the purpose? Why would we do it? And so tonight we're going to answer that question, hopefully, why? So I don't have a, a, a place to tell you to open to as far as Galatians 1, but if you want to follow along tonight, um, we will eventually be looking at some verses in Luke chapter 24 and also in Hebrews chapter 5. So um, if you want to get a jump start, it, it will come up on the screen, but I don't want that to, to be, you know, we are adults and we are students and, you know, that screen is there because I read the King James and you probably don't have a King James Bible. That's why that's there, but you should have a, a Bible and, you know, know where the stuff is and all that. So you can open to those two places, Luke chapter 24 and also Hebrews chapter 5. And let's just again ask the Lord to bless Bless us as we study his word. The scripture says that the entering in of thy word giveth light. Father, we just thank you so much for that fact. That as we study the word of God, it will be a lamp unto our feet, a light for our path. That you'll give us direction, knowledge, discernment, discretion, wisdom. So many things, Lord, that we can't even begin to enumerate as we consider the rich treasure that we have in this Bible, these scriptures. And so we ask, Father, that you would quicken our hearts, stir in us a passion and a love for your truth and for you. And may these things go beyond our brain, our mind. And may they be written in our heart and affect the way we walk. We just ask for that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last Revelation study that was two weeks ago now, I mentioned to you that the Bible is made up of 66 different books that were penned by 40 different earthly authors, and that in its fullness, in its completeness, the Bible is the complete and full revelation of God to man. Now, the problem that preachers often face because of the vastness of those 66 books and really the, 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 the variation in subject and theme throughout the Bible, the problem that we often face is choosing, well, where do we preach from? What book do I teach? What is the need? What is the thing right now? You know, how do I kind of get my finger on the pulse rate of the church and really discern by the Spirit of God what is the thing that's the most essential right now for us as a church to, to go through, to study? What do we need? And then that's a difficult thing to do. And as I was kind of thinking about this and, and, and praying about it and waiting on the Lord as to what book to choose or what section of Scripture to go through, I, I was rehearsing various scenarios in my mind. Well, should we go through maybe something in the Old Testament? Maybe one of the prophets or one of the historical books, you know, where you see the types and the figures and, and Jesus is there and you can dig out the picture and look at it and learn, you know, should we do that? 
Or maybe we should, you know, do a gospel and, and just get back to the basics of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish and, and all of what his ministry entailed and what it meant, the, just the, the fullness of Christ and knowing him. Should we do a gospel? Or maybe one of the prophets, or, or should we delve into New Testament theology? You know, where do we go? What do we do? And as I was kind of pondering all of this and, and musing it over in my mind, it, it kind of in my, my, you know, the way I think, it kind of became like this picture of this body. That the Bible really is like this incredible body of truth, you know. Each part of a body contributes to the full expression of the whole. And, and so I was thinking, well, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels would really be the heart because they showed to us who Jesus is. Jesus said that I am the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so in a study of the Gospels, it reveals to us the heart of Christ, the heart of the Father, and it helps us to know him. It's really the heart of the New Testament, the Gospel. Well, if the Gospels are the heart, well, then the book of Acts would be the feet. Why? The book of Acts is the only historical book in the New Testament that documents history or historical record. And it serves for us as an example of what the church is and what the church is to be. What are we to function as in the world as the body of Christ? That's the book of Acts. And so it is the feet of this body of truth. What does it look like, the outward expression of Christianity? Well, the gospel is the heart. Acts is the feet. Then revelation would be the hope or the drive. The reason why we as a people can say to the world that we have put the world behind us and the cross before us. The reason why we've forsaken all and followed Christ. That we have laid hold of eternal life, this treasure, this coming. We can see a city that can't be seen with human eyes. And it's the hope, it's the drive of why we do what we do and why we are the way we are. And that's true in, in a normal life, that something drives us. And then, if revelation is the hope, then the Gospels, if you were to take them, I mean, not the Gospels, the Epistles, what we're going to be studying and looking at, the Epistles become the mind or the brain, if you would, uh, of this body of truth that we are studying. Now, that is, all of that is concerning this body of truth. The heart, the feet, the drive, the brain of the Bible is laid before us in, in that way, in that section, in that picture. But we as individuals, we also have a body, both physically but also spiritually. We have been born again. And so therefore, as spiritual beings, as new creations in Christ, we also possess a heart, feet, a drive or a hope, a will, and also a brain. We have all of those things. And all of those things are essential in the functioning of a healthy spiritual body or a healthy spiritual Christian life. Is that we have to have a heart. We've got to know who Jesus is. We've got to kind of feel his heartbeat and understand his nature and his person and be acquainted with him to know him like Paul said. To know him in the power of his resurrection. That's really the heartbeat of, of our Christianity. And there needs to be feet, action, a response, a picture in our life and in our, 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 our daily expression of what we are, that there has to be an outward example of the inward reality. There also has to be a drive or a hope. We have to know where we're going. We can't be living in the world and for the world and yet be professing Christ and still think that we're going to be healthy spiritually because you can't. And there also must be a brain. And I truly believe that the, the, the diagnosis of the spiritual condition of the church and of Christianity today is that the brain is the thing that is malfunctioning the most. See, you can have heartless brains. You can do that physically. You could have someone who has a completely artificial heartbeat. Their brain works, you know, fine as far as all of its other functions and, you know, their feet and all the rest. But they have no heart. And that can happen in Christianity. Those are called Pharisees, theologians, you know. 
Someone said one time that theologians are a lot like porcupines. They have many fine points, but you can't touch them. You know, and, and that's true. Someone can be kind of a heartless brain spiritually. You know, they, they, they don't understand Jesus. They don't know him. You know, they don't possess that essence of his love, you know, but yet they know so much about the Bible. But you can also have, and this I think is the problem in other circles, brainless hearts. Those are like, you know, spiritual blondes, if you would. You know, brainless hearts, you know. <laughs> I didn't say physical. I said spiritual, you know. You can have dark hair physically and be a blonde spiritually. So I'm not insulting anybody, you know. Only God sees the heart, you know. So, but see, the problem, with a, the problem with a brainless heart is that, yeah, they know Jesus and they embrace him. They don't have any problem with, with that side of things. But they're, they're so into just the heart, and they're so brainless as far as understanding the doctrine and the, the, the truth, the foundations, the anchor, really, of what Christianity is, is that they're apt to go astray. They're apt to wander. They love Jesus. I'm not questioning that or their motives. But they're apt to be, what Paul would say, carried away by every wind of doctrine and slight of men, whereby in cunning craftiness they lie in wait to deceive. Because they don't give themselves to a study of Scripture, engaging their mind spiritually, exercising their brain in the Scriptures, because they don't do that, they may love Christ, and they can have the Holy Spirit, but yet they're prone to go astray and to wander and to sort of undercut the effectiveness of their Christianity or to kind of, you know, take the potency out of the fruit they could be bearing for the Lord because of it. And so you can have heartless brains, you can have brainless hearts. But think about this. Just as the brain in your body physically is responsible for the proper functioning of everything else in your physical body, the same thing is true spiritually. Your spiritual brain is responsible for the proper functioning of the heart, of the feet, of the mind, and of the will. It all comes from the brain. It is the control center, if you would. And so, therefore, the study of doctrine, taking the epistles, taking theology, things that require maybe a little bit of sweat, a little bit of toil, a little bit of you know, wrestling through and praying in and maybe chewing on and not understanding fully at first, those things are essential in the life of a healthy Christian because that will then spill over into the other areas of your Christianity, the way you relate to Christ, your prayer life, the way you receive from him and hear from him, know his voice and are led by him, the way that you deal with others and express, you know, the love of God to them in daily life. All of that will Filter down from what is taking place spiritually in your mind. And so, therefore, it's so important. The Apostle Paul was exhorting his young protege, Titus. And he's exhorting him, a young pastor, and he tells him this in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. He says, hold fast the faithful word as you have been taught that you may be able by sound doctrine. Listen to that. Sound doctrine. He doesn't say by spiritual might. He doesn't say by charismatic presence. He says, but by the tool that you will use is sound doctrine. You will be able to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Expressing to this young Christian the importance of being grounded in sound doctrine. To Timothy, another of Paul's protégés, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, For the time will come when they, speaking of God's people, professed Christians, that they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. The people will lose the desire. They will 
no longer have an appetite for sound doctrine, for things that are true and real and theological and, and, and tangible almost mentally. And that they'll heap to themselves teachers that just tell them things that comfort them. Itching ears. Oh, just t- say that again. I love it when you say that. But yet they will lose an appetite for sound doctrine. Again, to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, he charges Titus and he says, But speak thou, or but you speak the things which become sound doctrine. Do not follow the whims and winds of what comes into your mind or what you feel is important or the latest story that comes across the email, you know, chain list about young Timmy and his sweet story, you know. No, sound doctrine. That's what's going to be precious. That's what's going to be tried and true. That is what will be profitable to the people of God. It was true in Paul's day and it's true in our day. Can't say enough about the importance of sound doctrine. And a right mind concerning spiritual things is going to then turn into a healthy body that functions properly personally. Not, I'm not talking about the church at large. That will be automatic. But I'm talking about you in your spiritual walk, your relationship with Jesus Christ. It will be healthy and it will be wholesome as you give yourself to an understanding of why and what the scriptures say. Now, typically, at the start of a study of, say, like a book like Galatians, we would introduce the book of Galatians, give a historical background, and kind of a, try to capture the, the motive behind why it was written and, and, and all that. We'll do that next week. But for now, this study, what we're doing tonight, this is an introduction, really, to a section. An introduction to a section of the Bible. And the question that we want to ask and and answer in the remaining portion of our study is why is good doctrine or sound doctrine, as Paul calls it, so important? Why would we do this? Why are we going to study the epistles? Why is it so critical and essential that we be grounded in these things? Why are you making this case, you ask? Well, two reasons, a short study tonight, hopefully, and you all know what that means, you know. (laughs) Number one, if you're taking notes, is that sound doctrine keeps the heart in check. Now, I'm not talking any longer about the heart, you know, of, you know, the gospels or the, I'm talking about you as an individual Christian. Your heart spiritually is is alive and it's kind of wild if you would. And sound doctrine is what keeps the heart in check. Just as the brain, and we already said this physically, controls the heart physically, I'm talking as far as its rhythm is concerned, the mechanics of our heart and our body, the same thing is true spiritually. It is possible, if we are not grounded doctrinally in spiritual things, that we can go astray and be in error in our practice, the practice of our Christianity, and our behavior and our belief spiritually. There are many people that have taken the position in the day that we live in that Bible study isn't important. You know, even in church, or personal Bible study, or gathering together from house to house to search the scriptures in small groups, or to have people that you relate with, uh, you know, on a heart-to-heart level, one-on-one, and search the scriptures, talk about the Bible together, or to have devotions to daily be reading and studying and taking in and processing the Word. There are many in these days that say, well, that's just not really that important. I don't need to understand theology. It's enough to maybe take in a psalm or read the daily bread or my utmost for his highest or, you know, to go through these different things. But theology, that's for preachers. That's for teachers, for theologians, for Bible students, for that type of... That's not for me. I'm just a Christian, you know. Just a pew potato, if you would, you know. It's not necessary, not essential. And besides, they'll say, I have the Holy Spirit. And therefore, I just listen to what God is telling me in my heart. I I have a walk. I have a relationship with Him. And so that's enough, isn't it? 
Doesn't the Bible say, 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, that I don't need that any man teach me? That I have an unction from the Spirit of God that dwells within me, and that I don't need that, that that, that is an essential, that that unction that comes from the Spirit of God is enough. And, and doesn't the New Testament, doesn't it talk about the new covenant? Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, where God says that the days will come when there will be a new covenant. And that no longer will they say, know the Lord. And no longer will they teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother. Because all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. I will write my laws in their heart. I will put my word in their mind. And, and, and it will be this glorious time of new covenant where the Spirit of God just teaches us all things. Doesn't the Bible say that? And isn't it true that in the early church, in the book of Acts, that they didn't have the New Testament? They had the prophets, they had the Torah, you know, the five books of Moses, but they didn't have the epistles of Paul. They didn't study these things. They had the Holy Ghost, man, and so they didn't need all of that. And so I follow kind of that same thing. I'm a spiritual Christian. Yes, you know what? All of those things are true. You don't need that any man should teach you. You do have the Spirit of God given to you through the new covenant that gives you an unction and will be a lamp and a light to your path. It's true that the New Testament church, that they didn't have a New Testament Bible like we do. All of that's true, but listen, that's not the whole story. See, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Again, I read the first part of that, but I'll read it again. Paul said that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And listen to what will happen. Verse 4. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Paul is clearly expressing there that the absence of sound doctrine within the life of a believer will gradually, listen, gradually erode away the foundation of spiritual stability and it will ultimately produce apostasy. The lack of sound doctrine will eventually erode the stability of your spiritual foundation and it will ultimately produce apostasy. Again, Paul writing to Timothy. He's talking about false teachers and the influence that they would have upon young Christians, people that aren't established in the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these, the false teachers, also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. He talks about how false teachers, in the book of Acts, Paul warned the church at Ephesus that after he left, false teachers, wolves would come in and that they would defile the flock with their false doctrines. And it's true. I mean, it's no secret that as you look around the church today, not ours necessarily, but the church by and large, it's filled with all sorts of false doctrines. Winds of doctrine, Paul would say. Things that can't be found anywhere in the life of Christ as he walked upon the earth. Things that are never found anywhere in the New Testament, that there's absolutely no spiritual substance to back up their, their, their existence at all. Holy laughter. Oh, God wants us to have joy, so we'll all roll around in the church like morons. Holy barking. We'll make animal sounds and we'll cluck like chickens and baa like sheep and we'll just walk around and we'll have the Holy Ghost high and we'll get drunk on Holy Ghost wine and all of these things that you see going on in the name of Jesus, in the name of truth. False doctrine. And Paul would say that those that are unestablished in the faith, that don't understand what's going on, they will be carried away, swept away by the wind and tide of those things. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says that the purpose of apostles, preachers, teachers, you know, all of that, and evangelists and all that, is to teach sound doctrine to the church so that people would not be carried away 
with every wind of doctrine and be deceived by the craftiness of men. And so it's critical. And finally, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, really puts the nail in the coffin as far as it concerns following my heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, and you probably can tell me the verse without even seeing it, is that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? And it's probably one of the hardest lessons that every Christian has to learn is to realize the depravity of their own heart. To realize that deep down, inside, in the deepest of my motives, I am ultimately good. But that's a big, fat lie. It's a tough, tough lesson to learn. And if you haven't learned it yet, oh God, I pray for you. Because that's a hard one. It's hard to see your own heart. It's true that the New Testament church had no New Testament. And it's true that they relied largely upon the Holy Spirit to direct their paths and to administrate in their churches and to give them direction as far as how they would operate. But the reason why the New Testament was written is because of the problems that surfaced because of that belief. My heart my heart is just telling me that this relationship is of God. The love, I just love her so much. There's just, there's just this connection, and there's no way that this connection could happen if it isn't God drawing us together. And Paul would write to that Corinthian believer and say, listen, that's your stepmother. Are you out of your mind? But the Spirit is telling me, and Paul would say, no, listen to the voice of truth, the word of Christ. It's wrong. Others would say, no, it's all right. You know, I get there early. I go to the potluck, and, you know, hey, if you get there a little bit early before everyone gets there, you can get a few glasses of wine, you know, from the communion. And Paul had to say, listen, it's not of God for you to be getting drunk at the potluck at your church. And these things had to be corrected. There were others that came into the church and they were teaching whatever they felt was right about the resurrection. The resurrection of our bodies, the resurrection of Christ, what would happen at the rapture. They just, hey, whatever I feel. Whatever I feel God telling me in my heart. And Paul would say, no, that these things are defined. These things are not open for interpretation for you to just think and do and feel as you will. But there's order to the scripture, to the word of God. And so the New Testament was written because of the error that those had made that said, oh, I'm just going to follow my heart. Listen, it's important, hear me, it's important for you to listen to the word that the Spirit brings into your heart. It's important for you to be led of the Spirit. It's important for you to hear God's voice, to learn how to hear and discern what He's telling you to do. That's essential. But the Scripture the Bible, and specifically the doctrine, the sound doctrine of the New Testament, is given to us to be a governor and a guide to keep the things that I'm thinking, feeling, being unctioned, to keep those things in check. The Word of God, the Scripture, will either confirm what I feel the Spirit is telling me in my heart, and will then give me boldness to move forward in that direction. Or the scripture, the word of God, will convict me and correct me and tell me, no, that's not right. Your motive is a little bit off there. There's self involved in that desire. There's a little bit of, you know, you in that. And, and that's not of God. That, and, and, and as you study the word, you will either be confirmed in your convictions or you'll be convicted about the things that maybe you felt were confirmed previously. So important it is to know and study and understand good Bible doctrine. It keeps a heart in check. And it's interesting to me that every time that Paul speaks of this or it's brought up in the New Testament, it's, it's not something that we just read and study and then go on our way, but it's something that we must continue in. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That it wasn't something that they just took casually or lightly or occasionally, but it was something they took seriously and made it a priority and they did it continually. 
They gave themselves to sound doctrine. Paul would write to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verse 14, and he says, but thou continue in the things which you have heard. Continue. It isn't something to just do once and then let it go. It's in there. But continue in it. So important is that. And so good doctrine is important because it keeps our hearts in check. The second reason, if you're taking note, why it's so important to be students of the Bible, those that are diggers, enjoyers of sound doctrine, is because it also, number two, edifies the soul. It edifies the soul. During the decline of the Roman Empire there in the first couple of centuries A.D., in an effort to try to raise revenue to kind of support the faltering system, the Roman Empire sanctioned a state circus. And the role of that circus was to travel around to all of the various provinces within the faltering Roman Empire and to entertain the citizens, you know, th- that were in those places and, and seek to generate revenue through this uh, effort of entertaining, you know. Well, there was a severe famine in one of the North African provinces there. And, and they were desperately in need of food. They had sent word and asked and said, please send us some relief. We're starving here. The famine has been so long and we're just in need of some substance, in need of some sustenance. And so they they wrote, they inquired, they asked. But time passed and there was no response. There was seemingly silence coming back from the heads of state. And there seemed to be no concern about the hunger that these people were facing. And after a time, finally, a ship was seen coming into the harbor there. And the people, you know, rejoiced and they sounded the trumpets and they gathered around the dock and they came because finally they've heard our, our plea, they've heard our cry. And so they came to the dock and when the ship came in, it wasn't the substance, the sustenance that they were hoping for, but rather the ship was laden with sawdust. It was sent to prep the grounds for the circus that would then be coming to entertain the people that were there. They were in need of substance, but what they got was sawdust. They needed sustenance, but instead they just got a circus. That's what they were given. And it was a great disappointment to the people there when they were not edified by the coming of this relief that was to come. The same thing is true in the church today. The move has been growing for quite some time within the American church that we live in to move away from the scripture, to little by little draw back from digging into the word of going through and wrestling with doctrine. We're going to move away from the scripture and we're going to appeal more to the sensual, more to the audio, to the visual. You know, we're going to give ourselves to entertaining the people that, that, that come to our church. We're going to do drama. There's going to be interpretive dance, you know, that as music is played, people will just kind of follow the rhythm and, and, and let the spirit take over. Recently, someone handed me a teaching that was actually a very insightful teaching concerning biblical prophecy. The problem with it is that they had an interpretive violinist playing in the background. And it was so hard. I was like, goodness gracious, why couldn't they just put that on a separate track or something, you know? It was so hard to follow because there was the interpretive violinist, you know, that was there giving that whole thing. We'll have smoke screens and intelligent lighting. Listen, I'm not putting any of those things down in and of themselves. But when those things become the main attraction at the expense of putting aside the Scripture that which Jesus said would be more valuable than our daily bread. That which Paul said, the milk and the meat of the word that was given to us for our edification, for our growth, for our spiritual well-being. When that is put aside for the sake of entertainment, for the sake of feel-good Christianity, it's nothing but sawdust in a circus. The people's lives, the church in America says in these days, the church, the people's lives are so high strung. People are so stressed out that when they come to church, they just need to unwind. 
They just need to relax. They need to feel good. They need to be encouraged. They need to be affirmed and entertained, you know. And this is slowly becoming the self-professed role of the New Testament church in the modern era. The church has gone from a place where truth is declared, even at the expense of offending people, even at the expense of someone who might not like what you're saying, and they might stand up and walk out and never come back. But the church was a place where the truth was declared. A place where souls were wrestled with and shaken back to life. Reasoned with concerning the truth of eternal life and things to come. A place where people were called to take account of where they are at in relationship to eternity. Where they're challenged to rise above the status quo of the world and its ways and the morality of its cultures. And where they were made to think about and wrestle with doctrine and theology and to bring their lives under or in subjection to the word of God. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what the church was at its onset, at its foundation. But if we take an honest account of what we find, I'm not, again, I'm not saying Calvary Chapel, the Hudson Valley. I'm saying that the church, by and large, in the United States of America, it has gone from that healthy foundation, to now a place where you can enjoy free entertainment. The production of music and drama and the arts. A a comedic monologue of good Christian living. A sermonette, if you would, for Christianettes. It's become a place where people are comforted and affirmed, where they're not offended by the things that are spoken, the things that are shared. Where sin is not called sin, but rather we just kind of have what we would call redirective suggestions. Rather than calling something what it is, we'll just give a redirective suggestion about what should be done instead. You know, we don't want to offend. We don't want to rock anybody's boat. We don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. It's become a place where preachers use the word of God. Not to bring people in line with what it says, but rather they use the word of God and bring the word of God in line with people's lives. Let's make the word applicable. Let's make it palatable to the people that are listening to it. We'll bring the word into subjection with their lives. And so we'll read the message. Or we'll find a translation or an interpretation or something that softens the stroke of maybe God's wrath or of eternal hell or of something that offends or a lifestyle that God says is ungodly, that is abominable. Goodness, words like wickedness, words like abomination, words like wrath, words like suffer. Those words, they they just don't belong in church anymore become a place where people have come to be amused. Do you know what amuse means? The word muse is to think, and ah, the prefix ah means not. So amuse means not think. The church has become a place of amusement, of not think meant. Don't think. Just come, just listen, take it in, relax, enjoy. And now, without further ado, and then the smoke, the curtains, the lights, and ah, people are entertained. They're amazed. We better keep it simple. We better keep it light. We better keep it short. And that's what the church has become by and large and is becoming more and more by degrees the longer time goes on. Just like Paul said that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what feels good. Make me relax. That's why I'm coming to church. I think of Jesus when he walked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know the story. It was just after he rose from the dead. The disciples were confused. They didn't understand what was going on. Here was this man that was supposed to be the Christ. He's supposed to be the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, the one that's come to throw off the yoke of Rome. To be our Deliverer, the Promised One that the prophets and Abraham have spoken of. Here he is. And yet, somehow along the way, they missed the message that he would suffer and die and take up the cross. 
And as it happened, it says that they all forsook him and fled, and great confusion clouded the minds of his disciples. As Jesus was now put in the grave, and for three days he's been there, and it all seemed to come to a screeching halt. This whole messianic movement is now done. He's gone. And it tells us there in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus was walking on, I'm sorry, that two of the disciples of Jesus were walking on the road to Emmaus. That means they were leaving. They were leaving Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem. But they said, ah, it's over. They had misconceptions. They had problems. They were discouraged, they were despondent, they were depressed, they didn't understand, and they were checking out. They said, we got to go. And so these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says that Jesus took upon him another form, meaning they didn't recognize him, and he began to walk with them. The resurrected Jesus in physical body began to walk with these two disciples, and he asks them, he puts to them a question. He says, why is it that you walk along this way and you're sad? And they said, well, haven't you heard about the things that have taken place in Jerusalem in these days? Jesus said, what things? Jesus, the one who was supposed to be the Christ, the Messiah, but now he's been crucified and he's gone and we don't know what we're doing anymore. And then Jesus began to give to them a Bible study. There was no drama. There was no lights. There was no dance. There was no smoke. There was none of that. But Jesus just began to, first of all, address their issues. They were discouraged, despondent, and depressed. They had wrong concepts of Christ and who he was, his ministry and what it entailed. They were misled in their interpretation of Scripture. They were filled with spiritual error from their countenance all the way down to their beliefs in the core of what they were. And Jesus, as he began to speak to them, as he began to give them Bible study, a church service for two people. Can you imagine a preacher doing that? As Jesus began to do that, the first thing he did is he directly confronted their error. Don't you know how that the scriptures open and allege that Christ must needs suffer? Don't you know that the Bible says that this is the thing that would happen? He also addressed their attitude. He said to them in verse 17, he said, why is it that as you go this way that you are sad? He addressed the fact that their attitude was not right. Your attitude is right. Your scriptural understanding is off. And you're misled, or I'm sorry, he challenged them finally concerning their lack of understanding. So he directly confronts their error. He addresses the error of their attitude. And he challenged their lack of understanding in his introduction. And then, in verse 27, it tells us that he, he began to expound to them the word. He began from Genesis and he went all the way to Malachi. From the beginning all the way to the ending of the Old Testament. He took them through and he uncovered for them himself. He showed them in the pictures, in the types, in the stories. Where it is clearly set forth that the Messiah would come. And that he would be crucified. And that he would take upon himself the sin of the world. As God's wrath was poured out upon his only begotten son. And he gave to them that. Now listen. You can read the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. And yet somehow in their simple reading of the Old Testament scriptures. They missed all of that. But as Jesus opens up and goes under the surface. And begins to doctrinally theologically declare unto them the truth concerning himself out of the Old Testament. Tells us that their eyes were opened. He expounded the word. He showed them himself. He dug deep into theology and doctrine. He challenged their minds. And in the end, they realized that they were in the presence of Jesus. Their response to this Bible study was, first of all, verse 32, that didn't our hearts burn within us? Didn't something, listen, I got to tell, I got to be honest with you. During the Bible study last Wednesday night when Pastor Lloyd Pulley was here, I was sitting in the very back by the map, underneath the map. And as he went through the first 15 chapters of Leviticus, 
I felt that. My heart was burning within me. As he just, just brought Jesus out of Leviticus, the lamb, the one who atoned for sin, the one who heals our leprosy. And as he just did that, honestly, I felt my heart alive in me, just bursting forth with life as the word of God was just expounded. And these here, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us? There was something so real, something so majestic, something so alive about him. Just He, he wasn't saying anything crazy. He was just showing us the scripture. And yet there was such life in it. Verse 33, it tells us that they were encouraged. I'm not even open there. I'm going to start to lose track of why I'm saying these things. Luke chapter 24, verse 33, it says that they rose up the same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. It says that they were encouraged. They had been discouraged, despondent, walking away from that which had been. But in that moment when their hearts were ignited, when the word of God was uncovered, they were renewed in their purpose. And listen, a journey that took them eight hours to accomplish. A walk from Jerusalem towards Emmaus. From sunup to sundown. Well, probably less than, than sunup to sundown. But eight hours. They walk this distance listening to Jesus declare the word. And it tells us that in one hour they got back to Jerusalem. That'll put a hop in your step, right? I mean, if you're, do, you're making tracks. The same hour they came back to Jerusalem. They were revived. They were encouraged. Verse 34, it says that they said when they returned that the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. That they were corrected and they were, mo they were motivated. The opening of the word, the declaration of doctrine, the study of theology, uncovering Christ in the technical areas of scripture caused them to be edified and revived. The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it is. You know, some say Paul, some say James and all the rest. The writer of Hebrews set forth in his letter to demonstrate to his audience the superiority of Jesus Christ. And of course, the only thing that you have to do that with is the scripture. And so the writer of Hebrews systematically goes through the Old Testament and begins to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus over all of the various things in the past. He starts on level one. He says, let's make this real simple. And he says, let's take angels. And so Hebrews chapter one and two, he just takes angels and he shows how Jesus is superior to angels. Very simple to do. That anybody can, a child can understand that Jesus is superior to the angels. We understand that. Then he graduates. He takes them on. We're going to go from easy to medium. And he begins then to show them the superiority of Jesus over, now, the promised land that was given to them in Joshua and over the priesthood. And that's a little bit harder. It's a little bit more technical to take a look at the promised land and compare it to Christ and the priesthood and all that it entailed and, and show that Jesus is superior. It's a little bit harder, but he does it. Then he wants to take the next step. He's going to go, now, okay, we've done easy, we've done medium, now let's get into it. I want to show you Christ in some insanely technical things. But something happens in the mind of the writer when he reaches this point. He says, wait, they're not going to get it. I, I so want to show them this Melchizedek and what this means and show them. But they don't, they don't get it. They're not going to understand it. And so he pauses there in chapter 5 of Hebrews. And he gives to them this very strong indictment. I've asked you to turn there, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 and he gets to this point where he wants to take them deeper and he realizes that he can't he says of whom speaking of Melchizedek and all that it entails he says of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered seeing that you are dull of hearing for when for the time you ought to be teachers you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. 
For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or a baby. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he levies this heavy indictment against them, and he states four facts concerning their spiritual condition. And I want you, as I read to you these four facts that Paul has just read or or written, I want you to assess yourself and be honest with yourself is would Paul be saying this of me? First of all, he says, you're dull. Very pointedly, very offensively, Paul, or I'm sorry, I'm saying Paul, I don't know if it was Paul, whoever wrote this, probably was Paul, you know. But he looks at his audience and he says, I've got to be honest with you, you're dull. You're dull of hearing. Now, sharpness, which is the opposite of dull, sharpness comes through exercise. When we say that we're dull or we're rusty at anything, whether it's in our business or whether it's an old sport we used to play or whatever it is that we do, if we say that we're dull, the implication is that we haven't really practiced in a while. And Paul says concerning this arena of wrestling with doctrine, he says you're dull. You have not exercised in this arena. You have not been working in this. And any time you do not exercise something, what happens? It gets weaker. It pulls back. So how do you exercise spiritually? How do you exercise scripturally, doctrinally? Well, the same way that you exercise physically. You regularly, first of all, give yourself to it. Second of all, you have to stretch yourself and go a little bit further than is comfortable. I mean, anybody in here that works out in a gym or that is on a running regiment or on any of those other types of things, you understand that if you want to grow in your ability or in your physical capacities, then you have to push yourself beyond what your body wants to do normally. Do you understand that? The same thing is true spiritually. If you want to be someone who understands Christ, who sees him, who knows him, who uncovered him in the word, then you've got to stretch yourself out. You know, I've said, uh, you know, you've heard me from the beginning, two-something years now, every week, every week, I say, I'm sorry I went long. I'm sorry I went long. I respect your time. I love your time. Listen, I love your time, but I'm not sorry for going long anymore. That doesn't mean I'm going to take advantage of you. But we've got to be people that are exercised. That after a half an hour, we don't say, oh, goodness. That's enough, you know but that we be people of the word. People that say, I want to be sharp. I want to understand. I want to grow. I want to be deep. I don't want to grow dull in spiritual things. I want to be sharp. Dullness comes from a lack of exercise. The second thing that Paul tells them in verse 12, essentially, is that if you are not gaining ground, you are losing ground. He says, for when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God or the truth of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. That if you are not growing in your scriptural understanding and becoming sharper and going deeper, then automatically you are going backwards. You are either getting sharper or getting duller. There is no such thing as neutral. And if you become one that says, I am not going to engage in a study of theology or give myself to a doctrinal understanding foundationally, then you will be one that goes backwards spiritually and the scripture will become foggier and fuzzier and the elemental concepts of Christianity will again become the thing that you give yourself to. Paul gives a list of what those things are in verse 2 of chapter 6. You can read that later on your own. But all the things that we like want to be experts in, Paul says, that's milk. That ain't nothing. If you're not going forward, you're going backwards. In verse 13, he gives them the third thing. He says that to be doctrinally delinquent is to be spiritually stunted. He says, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. 
that if you're not one that understands theology, that digs into the word of Christ and has an appreciation and a love for it, then from heaven's perspective, you are looked upon as a baby in Christ. That you're not mature. That you're not sharp. That you're not competent. That you can't chew on meat. You won't understand deep things. So longing is this writer to give to them these riches. He said, I just can't. You just won't get it. And then his fourth statement in verse 14, he, he encourages and he says that those that engage, those that will think, those that will dig in and apply the word to their lives and wrestle with doctrine, that the result is that they will be healthy and mature. They will be sharp and skillful and acute that they will be alive and competent. Strong meat belongs to them that are full age. That means mature. Even those who by reason of use, that means you've exercised it, you've used it, you've applied it, you've sought to employ the principles that you've learned in the word in your life and you've learned what is real and what isn't or what applies in this situation and what applies in this situation and you've exercised the word of Christ. It's gone from your head to your heart to your feet and it's become a part of your life and you've been exercised in it now. And by reason of use, you have your senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. You know what's going to work. You know what's not going to work. You know what your attitude should be while you're at work Monday through Friday. You know what it should look like when you're at home with your wife and with your kids because you've been exercised by these things. You've proved it out. You've seen the fruit of laziness or sloth. And you've seen the fruit of pressing in and seeking God and doing what you know is right. And Paul says that the result, it all comes from the meat of the word. Notice that the objects of the exercise are milk and meat. Both substantial sources of edification, they come from where? The word of God. So essential is this. Things that edify. Good doctrine. Listen, good doctrine edifies the souls. And a soul that is edified is a soul that is healthy. Now, ironically, and we are drawing to a close here. Ironically, amazingly, that when a Christian, a person, is challenged mentally and exercised doctrinally and reproved maybe pointedly and taught Practically, when those things take place, guess what the automatic result is? You find yourself, first of all, encouraged. I don't know about you, but for me, I am very encouraged when the Word of God is clearly directed at me. It encourages me. It, it helps me to remember that God is working in my life, that he's, there's things that He's doing, things that He's saying, things that He's drawing forth and doing in me, and it encourages me. I always leave encouraged when the Word of God is taught. The second thing that happens is that I am entertained. I don't know about you, but I, I believe firmly that the Word of God is entertaining and should be entertaining. Nothing worse than drawl, dull, dry Bible teaching. Nothing worse. And then the Lord said, Get thee hence, and I will show thee what must be. Verse 7. You know, and you're like, Oh, Please, you know, let this end, you know, kind of a thing. Why? Because the Bible says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that it divides between the soul and the spirit, the joy and the marrow. It's active. It's real. Do you understand? And when the word of God is taught under the anointing of the spirit of God, it is entertaining. It's unwinding in a sense. I also find that when the Word of God is taught, I find an escape. I, I do escape. But listen, it is not an escape from reality. It's an escape to reality. I'm reminded again, yes, this is what's real. The, the things that I'm dealing with during the workday, the things that are going on during the week, the problems with the house or the car, none of that's real. It's all going to burn. It's all going to perish. But Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. 
And I find myself escaping into the only thing in all of life that is actually real. The Word of God. Not drama and dance, sound and smokescreen, but the eternal truth of God that edifies. God is going to work 